Starry Voices. Demystifying Zero Trust is a podcast created by Istari, a global cybersecurity platform. At Istari, our mission is to help create a digitally resilient future for the businesses we work with. This podcast series explores the strategy of Zero Trust as a way to help build cyber resilience. Today, we're talking with Yotam Maitar, Incident Response Manager at Signia, about the value of zero trust in incident response. Thank you very much, Yotam, for joining today. Really appreciate your time. As an incident response manager with Signia, how do you think zero trust is being adopted? And how do you think it started? How are you thinking that companies are really moving towards that model over time? Yeah, so I think the uh, first thing we need to do, of course, is align on, on what exactly we mean when we say zero trust, because it gets used for a bunch of different meanings across different companies. But I think generally speaking, if we put aside the buzzwords and try to look at content, then you know, zero trust in itself is essentially nothing new. It's trying to enforce the principle of least privileges and make sure that critical assets are safe. But I think the key differentiator is coming into understanding that the old perimeter of networks is not very relevant to protecting data and protecting critical assets. So a lot of organizations, a lot of companies are moving towards that realization. So I think the terminology of zero trust is helpful in at least outlining that. So it means when you're talking about zero trust, it means that you're acknowledging that just because something's within your network, within your corporate environment, doesn't necessarily make it safe or make it reliable as a source of, of trust. So Given that basic understanding, we're seeing more organizations trying to move towards a zero trust architecture, which essentially means they basically authenticate and validate their users in more areas of their environment. And they do the same for machine accounts and other access. So there is a big difference between how this is done with SaaS services and how this is done for services that are on-prem that organizations have within their organization. But if I go back, I think that the main trend, which kind of applies to everybody who's talking about zero trust, is this. is It's limiting access, making sure least privileges is enforced as much as possible, and that it works well with avoiding the worst consequences of older environments and networks, which had, let's say, over-permissive trust within their networks. And then once you were in, you could get to a lot of different resources. Yeah, you mentioned the, one of the key concepts is really around authentication of both users and devices. How are you seeing organizations adopt that shift or transition into that mode where they're authenticating everything? So that's a very tough question because I think if we're looking at SaaS services, which many organizations are using more and more, there it's easier because organizations are getting used to the fact that any access to a SaaS service is done through a specific authentication policy. It's done leveraging multi-factor authentication and those things, at least in good services, which are SaaS services, can be turned on and managed quite easily. And there, everything becomes user-based or authentication-based in a way that's more secure and doesn't assume trust for anything. Though we do see examples of organizations who, for example, forgo two-factor authentication if the connection is coming from the internal office IP address, which is obviously a potential breach of zero trust because it means that once somebody got into that network, they can bypass at least some authentication to get the critical resources. The place where it gets a lot more interesting is with standard classic on-prem corporate environments, especially Active Directory, because there is an interesting point to make, which is that Active Directory can be 
inherently contradictory to zero trust, at least to full zero trust. Because if you look at an Active Directory environment, then you have protocols which don't support zero trust. You have a lot of information within Active Directory that's accessible to any user on the domain, and that's not exactly zero trust. If you had zero trust, you wouldn't even have a domain. You'd have a bunch of standalone workstations, and you'd have users who need to authenticate separately to each service that they connect to. So when working through implementing zero trust effectively within Active Directory environments, a key element that organizations are leveraging there is SSO, single sign-on, and managing it correctly. So essentially, single sign-on can be used in a way that completely bypasses and ruins the concept of zero trust, because if you get to one place, you get to all. But it can also be used in a way that still requires granular authentication and granular access based on what you have, but avoids the pitfalls of I'm on one machine in the domain and now I get to access a bunch of servers, which I shouldn't be accessing anyway. So these are the areas that are tougher for organizations to implement, but when they do it well, we really see big differences. So when I do incident response and I see a lot of organizations and the way they handle massive attacks, then this really shows the difference in how they manage authentication within Active Directory and the way they leverage SSO. So for example, when we look at ransomware cases, which are usually not the most sophisticated attacks, but just very efficient going for what they need, there's a huge difference between organizations that have very well implemented management of, of authentication and a tiered model within Active Directory, which essentially means that once attackers get in, and we see this all the time, they have a very hard time moving between different services in Active Directory, moving between different areas of the environment. Active Directory can be part of the challenge inherently because it's an older technology. It's been around for a very long time now and does a lot of communication between domain controllers, that communication is necessary for it to function. How has Microsoft changed Active Directory by moving it out to Azure with Azure AD? Even if they do get to perform encryption or data exfiltration, it's more limited and organizations are quicker to recover versus organizations that have a very interconnected and trusting Active Directory environment, which is then leveraged by attackers to pretty much encrypt the whole environment before they ask for a ransom. How is that solving part of the problem associated with the weaknesses that are inherent to Active Directory itself? Yeah, so that's actually a fantastic point because I think Azure AD is often confused for just Active Directory in the cloud, but it's not. Azure AD is a different service and it works in a different way. So essentially, if organizations manage more of their users and credentials and authentication through Azure AD, they're not risking the same kind of things that they have with an on-prem Active Directory, unless of course they're connected and the risks are just to put one step further, but they're still there. But once these things are managed individually in these kinds of services online that are SaaS services, then we can avoid a lot of these problems. Because when you have Azure AD, you don't have something like a domain control, which runs everything. You have a SaaS service, which is essentially an identity service. And the same thing applies when you use other management services that are SaaS like Intune or Okta or Jamf or MDM solutions, which essentially are a very good way of leveraging a SaaS solution to manage workstations, servers, anything that you need without leveraging all the features of Active Directory, which rely on trust. So a good example for this would be managing workstations. So there are organizations 
that managed workstations, it becomes more and more of a trend now, managed workstations directly using Azure AD or other online SaaS management services. And they can do this in some cases instead of having them on Active Directory. So if you get to a point where you have a workstation that's not on Active Directory at all, and it's only managed with Azure Active Directory, Azure AD, or other online services, then that means that you can still manage that workstation. You can deploy whatever you need to in order to manage it, make sure that it's secure. But if an attacker gets into some part of your environment or some user's workstation, that doesn't really give them anything as far as access to other workstations or servers in the environment because it's not even an AD. So it doesn't really enable them this kind of lateral movement and privilege escalation, which would have been much easier in a standard on-prem AD environment. Those are very good points. And I see a lot of organizations struggle to understand the value of moving to Azure AD. When you think about decoupling the security model from the network, that's what really Azure AD is really about. It's about managing identity separately from the infrastructure, whereas traditionally Active Directory was all about integrating the infrastructure and the identity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see this. Active Directory is, of course, a key example because a lot of organizations rely on it. But we see similar things happen with, with other solutions. For example, a lot of organizations, especially over the past two years of COVID, got used to relying heavily on VPN. Now, VPN is also something that, in a way, inherently contradicts zero trust because VPN implies that you need to be in the network in order to get something that you don't get outside of the network. And that means there is trust that exists for stuff inside the network. Now, there are solutions that help organizations move towards zero trust network access or ZTNA, which is essentially you can get around this. You no longer need to have VPN in order to do all this stuff to work remotely and people need to change their paradigm. People often think, yeah, unless I'm working through a VPN, I'm not secure, but that's not necessarily true. It all depends on how well you manage these resources and how you enable the access between them. So for example, the key term here is where's your policy enforcement point? Right? So where in the stages of access, the different critical assets in the environment, you enforce the policy that means I need to validate you again, whether it's through credentials or through where you're coming from. It doesn't really matter the way that you perform the authentication as long as it's secure. But as long as you have these policy enforcement points in front of every access to every critical or important asset, then you should be secured. For that, you no longer need to run through a VPN. So it could be inside the corporate network, and then you have to run it through a VPN, but it could also be a SaaS service or something that's directly managed by the authentication service of a specific service that the user wants to use. And therefore, the very use of these standard services like VPN, like Active Directory that we're used to, could be either very different or even made completely moot in some cases because we have these effective policy enforcement points that ensure zero trust between sensitive areas and other areas of our environment. That's a very important concept to remember that the zero trust model inherently moves those enforcement points out from a central location like a traditional VPN like you're talking about, where, where basically you're allowing people into a perimeter to right in front of the resource you're trying to access in most cases, so that you can control access to that resource independently from every other resource within your environment, whether or not it's in the cloud or in your data center or in somebody else's data center or whatever, it doesn't make a difference. But the, the point is that in, enforcement engine is there right at the front door to the resource. Now the policy 
is managed centrally somewhere else, which is important to to keep in mind as well, because that policy can apply to multiple enforcement points throughout the entire environment. And that's the big paradigm shift between a traditional security model and a zero trust security model, moving those enforcement points right in front of those resources. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that paradigm shift that you're discussing is critical to understand because, again, you often hear people instinctively say, yeah, if I'm working through a VPN, I'm more secure than if I'm not. But essentially what that approach means, if you take a deeper look at it, is if there is something to be gained by working through a VPN, that means by definition that there is some trust within the VPN, within the corporate network, because otherwise, what's the point of working through the VPN? You could just work through the internet. So the very fact that the VPN is there may be assisting security in some ways, but it means that behind the scenes, there is something that hasn't implemented zero trust yet. And of course, nothing is fully 100% zero trust, at least for most organizations, but it means that it's potentially impeding the progress towards that area. And I think That's complemented by another key point here within these corporate networks, which is given that you do have some corporate network and you do have some things that are accessible within that environment, which many organizations have, it's not like you can just turn on a switch and you have perfect zero trust. Then another key concept to implement here towards zero zero trust is micro-segmentation. So the more you have micro-segmentation between servers and workstations in the organizations, meaning you can't just access perform remote code execution on different workstations and servers within the network just because you're in the same LAN, that really makes a big difference because we're both on the same network. We may have IP addresses even within the same segment, but unless there's a specific reason for two services or a workstation and a server to communicate over a specific port, it should be completely blocked. And that really goes towards network trust and the way to avoid overly permissive network trust, which is the the source of most lateral movement that we see today in, in incident response. Very good points. And that really kind of segues into how does zero trust stop the threats? You talked about it right there, limiting the lateral movements, but what are other ways that zero trust really helps stop the threats from either accessing specific resources or spreading throughout the environment or in many cases, hiding from traditional detection mechanisms? Yeah, so that's something that we experience on a daily basis doing incident response. The big difference between how far an organization is on their zero trust journey and how easy it is for attackers to get around defenses and target critical data and critical assets. If we assume an organization that has a lot of trust, services are accessible from the entire internal corporate network and SaaS services are also accessible there without multi-factor authentication if coming from this network or through badly managed single sign-on, then essentially what we commonly see is attackers land somewhere within an organization. They have their initial entry point. And from that entry point, the time it takes them to get to the critical assets they're targeting, whether it's for espionage or data theft, financial theft, or even encryption and ransomware, is very short. We're seeing it happen within days, sometimes even hours. However, when organizations have a pretty advanced implementation of at least partial zero trust, what happens is, making every step along the way becomes much harder. I'm not gonna lie and say that it becomes impossible. Obviously, if an attacker wants something badly enough, things are gonna be possible. But it becomes much, much harder and creates a lot more opportunities for detection. So for example, if we have a very effective implementation of 
multi-factor authentication and re-authentication for access to critical databases within an organization, or even better if they're managed on a SaaS service. Then even if an attacker was able to take over a workstation or even take over all of Active Directory, in order to access the critical data within these critical applications, they're now gonna have to figure out a way to bypass this multi-factor authentication, either by performing some session hijacking on a user or changing multi-factor authentication tools like phone numbers so that they can be redirected to the attacker, again, depending on how they're managed. But these steps will A, take much longer, and B, could potentially be alerted upon with specific tailored alerting within an organization. Because an organization that went this far in implementing the different zero trust measures that prevent access to, to these kind of critical resources can also implement tailored alerting so that their internal SOC and security team could easily detect behavior targeting these areas and then shut down an attack before the worst of it actually takes place. Yeah, that's a very good point you make there. This is really about gaining additional visibility into the processes that are happening throughout the entire network, right? It's user behavior, but it's also device behavior, network behavior, and all of those three things really tie together to allow an organization to gain more visibility into what's happening and what's happening outside the norm, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And in the, in the end, security is, is a game that you play on several fronts. So one major benefit of going towards zero trust is, of course, prevention. You just make it, things harder for attackers. But a second major benefit is visibility. Even if things are still possible and attackers can get to them, then you have a lot more places where you can catch them in the act and then throw them out while they're operating and improve the defenses later. So we really do see this quite a lot. There was I recently had a major ransomware engagement where the organization had a lot of services managed completely in a SaaS environment. And all of these parts of the environment were pretty much unharmed because they all had their own multi-factor authentication set up. They were all pretty much secured from the attackers. However, attackers did a good job of taking over all of Active Directory and encrypting across the organization, both workstations and servers, which undoubtedly hurt the organization. But what happened to them in that case is they started looking at, okay, what do we need to do now as far as recovery and what would make us need to pay the ransom demand? First, they looked at recovery of encrypted data and they said, great, we have all of our data in an Azure backup, which is an immutable backup, meaning even if the attacker would have gotten to the credentials for Azure, then it's there for 30 days, not even the account owner can delete it. So it's perfectly secure, the backups are okay. And second, let's take a look at what data the attacker could have taken. And they saw that even though there was some data exfiltration, it was all pretty, let's call it unimportant, not important enough data from the organization because all critical data was stored in SaaS services with separate authentication and separate access measures, which were not bypassed by the attacker taking over Active Directory. So given this information, they came in pretty confident that, okay, we may not need to pay the ransom. In this case, we can recover ourselves and we don't care that much if they leak the data they took. Now, once the their internal recovery and investigation processes were underway, they realized that they had made a mistake and not everything was managed so perfectly. So even though they had these wonderful backups in Azure that were completely secure and untouched by the attacker, and that was true, what they realized is that some of these backups, in this case, it was about 25% of the backup, they were encrypted with a specific client-side key, and that key was kept within Active Directory, only on a couple of servers, and those servers were encrypted by the attacker. So essentially what happened is because the process of implementing this separate, wonderful backup, very appropriate for a zero-trust model, was not completed, 
what happened was it still relied on information within Active Directory, which was accessible to the attacker on the flat network and encrypted. So they came to a conclusion that, hold on, we can't fully recover without these keys. And the keys are an Active Directory and they were encrypted. So in this case, because it was just the specific keys, we actually leveraged this information for a nice trick with the attackers. So as part of the... Um, as far as of our response efforts, obviously we do containment, we do investigation, we do recovery, but another key element is tactical negotiation, where we talk to attackers and try to advance our goals both in the investigation and in the recovery as effectively as possible through negotiation. So what we did here is a very standard thing that we do in ransom negotiations is request a proof of life, where essentially we send attackers some encrypted files from the environment and they have to send them back decrypted to prove that they indeed have the keys and they can prove that they can perform decryption if they're paid. So in this case, when we asked for the proof of life, the files that we sent attackers to decrypt were specifically the files that we needed to get to the backup, the specific keys that were encrypted. Because the organization didn't care much about the rest, they only cared about these keys. We're able to use negotiation to get these keys back and then get the whole recovery process back up online because, again, the backups themselves were perfectly secure in a different place with no trust for the AD environment that could have led the attackers to target these backups. That's a pretty sneaky way to get around the whole ransomware thing. In some cases, yeah. You mentioned that they were only partially zero trust. How would the organization been positioned better had they completed their zero trust implementation? That's a good question. I think th there are a couple points during the attack that we know based on our investigation that would have been prevented or at least significantly slowed down if zero trust was implemented in a better way. So we can get started with the way the attack unfolded to begin with. Attackers got in using a simple phishing email sent to an unsuspecting user within the organization. Now, from there, their lateral movement path towards critical servers and privilege escalation path towards domain admin was quite short. And the reason for that was that it was very highly connected, the environment. There was no real network segmentation. And users were authenticated to a bunch of different machines across the organization without real management. Now, take that and assume that you change it up to include a better implementation of zero trust, there would be two major differences here. One would be network segmentation. There's no reason for a specific workstation to be able to authenticate to different workstations and servers over remote code execution ports. So that trust would be gone within the internal network, and therefore most lateral movement paths used by the attackers would have been gone as well. And second has to do with credentials. So in this case, on the workstation they landed on, they were able to find higher privilege credentials in memory, use those to get to other servers, and then find better credentials in memory and quickly move to a domain controller. However, if we had a better implementation of a tiered security model within the environment, which didn't assume this kind of trust. So for example, there's no reason to find a server admin user on a workstation, and there's no reason to find a domain admin on some random server within the environment, then if these would have been implemented without this kind of trust, then again, attackers would not have been able to move laterally and escalate privileges as easily as they did. So that means that either they would have just stopped because in ransomware attacks, usually they just want to monetize quickly. So if something gets too hard, it's true, they could work harder and harder to try and get around defenses, but in most cases, they could just move on to the next victim because you know they operate as a business, the ROI after some point is just not worth it. So they're gonna um, they're gonna move on to someone else. Or even if they would have performed these additional uh, steps needed to get around these zero trust defenses and compromise the organization, these would have taken much longer and triggered many more alerts, which would have given the organization the time and the potential possibility of kicking the attackers out before they even got to the encryption phase. 
Gotcha. And those are some really important points to remember for an organization that when you're talking about putting all these additional controls in place, that it's really around making it more difficult for the attacker to get to where they want to go. If an organization has one gate, that one gate is going to be targeted by thousands of potential attackers. If they have a thousand gates, just as an example, it's likely that there's only going to be one attacker that's got the persistence and the patience to attack all thousand gates, which significantly changes their posture and their exposure to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, the key to remember here is there's no point in having a thousand gates if there's one key that opens all of them. But, exactly. Yeah, but <laughs> but the whole idea behind striving towards zero trust is getting to a place where you at least revalidate, you at least need different. It's not enough to get into one gate in order to get into the others. And more than that, I think that the key, we don't want to increase the size of our attack surface. So a thousand gates doesn't necessarily mean we have more services, more vulnerable data. It just means that we manage it in a way where each critical element of our data, of our environment, of our assets has its own, as we said before, its own policy enforcement point, which makes it much harder to get around. And getting into one does not necessarily guarantee getting into the others. Yep, exactly. You've talked a little bit about how some organizations who are on the journey have been affected essentially positively by adopting zero trust in their incident response. Have you worked with any organizations that have, quote unquote, gone the entire distance to zero trust and still been subject to breach? Or has it really washed that risk away from most organizations that are fully there? So first of all, I think it's hard to define exactly what going the entire distance is. I think every organization still has some areas to improve in that regard. But I have seen organizations that were very far along in this journey. They had very little trust between entities in their environments that, that were still attacked. But usually these attacks are not going to be your standard ransomware generic attacks that we see targeting Active Directory. They're going to be more sophisticated. I could give one example, which is an organization that was pretty far along this journey. They had very individualized management of workstations and servers. They had an internal corporate network, but it was very well segmented. And they had SaaS services managing their workstations. So they mostly had Macintosh, so they used JMF to manage it. And they had different tools for managing servers and mostly within AWS. And they did suffer a pretty significant attack, but the attack was a very sophisticated one. So what we saw attackers doing here is initially infiltrate the organization, leveraging a social engineering campaign, which took months, not just sending one email and hoping that somebody would click on it. The organization I'm referring to in this case was a cryptocurrency exchange. And what attackers did was create fake academic email addresses that appeared to look like legitimate email addresses of people working at very highly thought of academic institutions worldwide. And they initiated conversations with specific people within the organization for months solely on an academic basis of investigating and researching blockchain, which is obviously something these people working for a cryptocurrency exchange is very interested in. And they had real, very high-level conversations with these people for a few months before, after a few months of communication, finally asking them to download some data sharing program, which they then sent them, and it had ready-made tools for Mac, Linux, and Windows within for any option that could, could occur. And then once they had this initial access, they had so much information that they gathered through this conversation and the social engineering that they were able to leverage 
internal processes to get around pretty comprehensive zero trust measures. So for example, servers running some of the cryptocurrency wallets were pretty hard to access. The, the keys, the SSH keys to them were managed in a secure way. You needed two-factor authentication. You needed at least two users, but because the campaign was so long and effective, they were able to target different users, get everything going for them in the right time, hijack the right sessions for the right people and the right admins, and then get to a point where at the right second, they had access to the server to create their own malicious transactions. So it can happen, but obviously this is a more sophisticated level of attacker, which requires more sophisticated defenses in place. However, the fact that they had to work this hard to get there attests to the strength of the zero trust system rather than to its weakness. Yeah, it really shows that people are still the weakest link in the entire chain. Yeah, I, I think given good security and well-managed IT, then people will definitely be the weakest link. But yeah, I, I guess that's unavoidable. Eventually, we need to acknowledge as defenders that we need to do the best we can, but no defense is ever going to be 100% perfect. 100% perfect would be put your data on a piece of paper, lock it in a safe and bury it in the ground. But And even that's not perfect. There's Once there's no. people who need to access the data, then that means bad people can also access the data in some way. Yeah, exactly. I used to joke with colleagues time and time again that the most secure network is one that's turned off. Yeah. So where does an organization really go next? Where does security go next now that Zero Trust is becoming more and more widespread and many organizations are embarking on that journey? Where do you think we need to go next as far as maturing either the Zero Trust security model or just in general the security model? Yeah, so that's a very big question. I think we we first have to differentiate between two main kinds of organizations. So I think there is an elite of organizations that are really rapidly moving towards implementation of zero trust and getting a lot of security tools and security monitoring and effective tailored alerting in place across their estate, and that's very effective. But the majority of organizations aren't there yet. And for the majority of organizations, I think the, if we're thinking about the future, what they need to do is get as close as they can to this. I'm not saying have perfect, inarguable zero trust, but you need to get closer to that state because the truth is most organizations who get targeted by the simpler attacks, by business email compromise, by ransomware, by things that aren't too sophisticated, simply don't have this stuff in place. And they're a lot behind because it does require resources and work to get this going. So they just need to get on this trail and start performing these activities, which other organizations may have already been doing for a few years. Now, for the more, more sophisticated, more advanced organizations, that's a tough question. I think that apart from making sure that, that zero trust is at least used or leveraged more and more to secure critical assets and data, I think they're gonna be up against the more sophisticated attackers, just because the less sophisticated ones are going to target the less sophisticated organizations anyway. So when it's handling more sophisticated attackers, in the end, it's a lot of things are going to come down to combining the principle of least privilege, which is the core of zero trust, with the principle of dual control or avoiding single points of failure. I think that's a major thing that we need to move to, especially when it comes to financial systems. So even if we have pretty well implemented zero trust and least privileges, Eventually, there are ways to get to compromising users or systems which are highly privileged in an environment and can manage it. However, what truly goes a long way in impeding these kinds of attacks is if critical management assets are only managed with dual control, dual human control or dual system control to avoid 
single points of failure. So for example, if an organization has an EDR deployed to its workstation, which is a good idea, it's a good way of managing it, the problem theoretically could be that an EDR can also run code on these workstations. And then if an attacker manages to compromise the workstation of a security admin on an EDR, and then they can hijack their session, even if they have multi-factor authentication to gain access to the EDR management console, they can from there deploy malicious code pretty much to any device in the organization and bypass the fact that the organization has pretty good zero trust because eventually they do trust the EDR set, something that, that runs the EDR on all these workstations. However, if the organization decides that to perform certain activities through uh, the EDR or any other management system, they require dual, dual control, dual approval, meaning at least two admins, two people have to separately authenticate with multi-factor authentication and approve some action or create some action together. Obviously, attackers could get around that too. They could hijack sessions for two people or five people or 10 people, but this gets much harder. And ideally, what happens in many cases is that attackers don't know this in time. They get to a very privileged user. They assume that's gonna give them what they need. They try to perform the activity. And then if a single point of failure is avoided and dual control is implemented, that could lead to easy detection because they just tried to do something no user should ever be trying to do alone. And then they could, hopefully the organization can fight back against this kind of attack quickly enough to prevent the sophisticated attacker from getting where they need to. So my first thought are, in that case, or if I was a security manager or a CISO, I'd be worried about manpower. So taking into consideration that the organizations, many organizations are already staffed very thinly, how would you counter that argument around the dual control or multiple control scenario? Yeah, it's a legitimate concern. I think we don't need to sugarcoat it. It's true that having dual control on system by definition means you need to spend more human hours or more human time on this. However, the key should be the dual control process should only apply at critical policy enforcement points, at critical junctures for very sensitive operations that need to be done. So there could be some granular policy in place, simple things anybody can do, more sophisticated or dangerous things only very specific admins can do. And then things above that, there should be certain groups of approvers that at least things go through them. Because honestly, a lot of these operations shouldn't be done on a daily basis. So effective management of, of for example, deploying updates or running code on, on multiple systems, this should usually be done through some automated system. And when this is done appropriately or at a certain frequency, then yeah, there, it doesn't cost us that much to have two or three people run through it and approve it. There's other benefits besides avoiding the single point of failure to this anyway, which is making sure we don't apply something broken or that doesn't work as well as it should. So it's true that this could cost more time, but I don't think it should be dramatically more given that it's only done at the critical junctures. And again, this is something that I think we at the security industry need to learn to do because it also applies to another potential risk, which is the insider risk. So forget an external attacker. What happens if you have an insider within the organization and a strong IT guy or a strong security guy with high privileges that decides to do damage, attack the organization for some reason? If they have any privileges they want, then it's almost too easy for them. But if we look, for example, at the banking industry, then I think if we go 30 years back, it was a lot easier for a banker to embezzle money from their bank than it is today. 
Why? Because it happened enough times that banks put in controls that certain things have to be approved by more than one person or that they have very specific alerting as to strange or unusual activities performed by bankers. And we could go towards a similar place within the security and IT realm. Now, I'm not saying this will happen tomorrow, but if we're thinking about where we need to go in the future, obviously people who work in security and IT have a lot of power and a lot of financial impact that does not fall short of that which some bankers have. But the banking industry is already used to having these controls in place and we're not, but I think eventually we're gonna to have to get used to it as well. Yeah, and the other concept to think about though is the fact that zero trust in, encompasses a lot of automation technologies besides just those multiple enforcement points. So a normal day-to-day -day operation for an organization is going to be shifting from the menial tasks of responding to a bunch of alerts that really don't mean anything over to things that really require significant investigatory exercises. And, and that's where you're really talking about a shift in resources. They're not working on those small tasks any longer. And now there's actually time freed up for multiple people to authenticate and authorize a process to happen that's riskier for an organization, like you said, like pushing out updates or pushing out code that potentially expose the organization to new risk. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it also that the fact that there's more automation involved could also lead to focusing on things that may have been taken too much for granted before. So if we look at the rise of supply chain attacks that we're seeing over the past few years, then these are things that many organizations had zero uh, alerting and zero uh, effort targeted at identifying, but it's not like it's impossible. So if you look even at sophisticated ones, like uh, the solar wind supply chain attack, which impacted thousands of organizations, and there was a sophisticated insertion of code directly into the CICD pipeline of a trusted vendor. However, if organizations had tailored alerting, which they were creating to monitor trusted vendors within their organization, then they could have prevented this, right? They could have detected the strange activities starting to appear from the SolarWinds server and prevent some of the malicious activities performed in post-exploitation. More than that, they could have, if they had a good zero trust model implemented there and lease privileges, Organizations that had prevented outgoing internet connections from SolarWinds servers directly to the internet, to any IP they wanted. If, for example, they only allowed them to communicate with IP addresses that belong to SolarWinds, that include updates, then even if they would have received such a bad update, nothing bad would have really happened because the attackers would never have known that they have this new tool communicating to them and no post-exploitation would have taken place. So there's big benefits to leveraging this extra automation and zero trust because it can also help us tailor defenses and alerting to detect these more sophisticated attacks. Absolutely. This has been a very interesting conversation, Yotam. I really appreciate your time. If there was anything that you wanted to share with the audience here around your experience related to the incidents response or building architectures or the management of zero trust environments, what would that be? I think it's worth acknowledging that the, the, there's no need to be scared of the term zero trust that gets thrown around a lot. Eventually, the concept of least privileges that underlies it is nothing new. And the more organizations implement this, the more effective it is. And really, we're seeing some of these small changes go the furthest in preventing the worst outcomes of incidents when we do incident response with any kind of attackers, whether it's ransomware or more sophisticated nation state attackers. These minor changes that are in the zero trust journey, even if they're not all the way there, really make a huge difference for organizations. 
Awesome. Thank you very much again, Yotam. I really appreciate your time, and I hope the audience got a lot of good information out of today's conversation. Thanks, Don. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Demystifying Zero Trust. We hope you found the content both interesting and insightful. Subscribe to this podcast to continue to explore why and how organizations should adopt Zero Trust.